the numerous people who turned up at uh, asylums in France after the revolution who'd survived the guillotine frenzy, but who believed that their heads had been chopped off. And scores of them, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I, I, I got the wrong head. My head was chopped off, but unfortunately there, there was a mix up in the basket. And because um, I've got really good teeth, these teeth are terrible. You know, these kind of, it's real black comedy, isn't it? listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling into the show today, we have Victoria Shepard. Victoria is an award-winning producer of historical documentaries for BBC Radio and the author of the book, A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse, which she wrote as a companion for her 10-part series of the same name for BBC Radio 4. Victoria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Gabe. I am very excited for today's episode. Living with bipolar disorder, I personally have experienced delusions, so I, I have a personal investment in this topic. But before we dive in too deeply into our topic today, Victoria, can you explain what definition you used for delusions? Well, the, the working sort of um, definition that I use for my book is a fixed false idea that can't be shaken despite um, evidence, plenty of evidence to the contrary. So it's an unshakable, fixed, false idea about the world. It's been important for me as a historian writing the book to keep focused on that definition because the subject is very nebulous and elusive, really, and it crosses over into all sorts of other um, areas. And so I've tried very much to stick to that kind of psychiatric definition of a delusion, which means that the 10 characters whose life stories I tell from across many centuries may in many respects be very high functioning, but they have at least one fixed false idea about themselves. Victoria, for me personally, whenever anybody asks me what a delusion is, I, I say you feel that it's there. Like, you know, the monster is under the bed, but you can't see the monster. Oh, that's that's really interesting. What that speaks to, from my point of view, is this idea that uh, logic won't touch a delusion. It's not something you can be talked out of or you you partially you suspect or, or something. It's an absolute fixed false idea. Some very interesting research in 1991, which was the first time that well, a psychologist had, uh, had asked the general population about their delusional beliefs. Nobody had ever really asked the general population at random. And this happened in Baltimore in 91. And they discovered, of course, that we're all delusional. We're somewhere on the spectrum. We all have at least one fixed false idea about ourselves. And yet these people, the kind of people who'd ended up being logged as being delusional over the centuries were the people whose delusions were so extreme that they ended up in institutions. The volume on them can be so turned up that life, normal life and functioning becomes impossible. Victoria, I feel like it's important to say that science doesn't really understand where delusions come from. We, we think there is some aspect of biological brain malfunction or disease. Well, it's all just very incredibly complicated. But your work looks at delusions with a psychological or psychodynamic lens. 
And your book and your radio series are incredibly fascinating. Now, I want to point out to our listeners that you are a trained historian. And in your book, you describe 10 different case studies of people throughout history who experienced delusions. Now, these people are all very different. There are men and women. They live in different time periods spanning from the 1300s all the way today. They're even different socioeconomic classes. And the main thing you are showcasing is how delusions have manifested and changed over time. What got you started on this? How did you first become interested in delusions? Right. Well, I mean, I suppose that the the entry the entry delusion, certainly for me, would be um, King Charles VI of France. He was a 14th into 15th century king. Um, and um, he believed that he had turned into glass. Now, he had a very busy day job. He was dealing with the Hundred Years' War with, with England. Um, but privately, what he was worried about was smashing if he came into contact with hard surfaces, which is kind of absurd scenario you know, to understand it, that, that glass was a, was a new technology. He may have seen glass um, in shot cathedral windows or in sort of his, his royal goblets, but they, they would have been very thick and opaque. And glass that you had in a window in a domestic space that gave you a good view was brand new. Plate glass had just been invented um, in Rouen. And of course, at that time, um, it, it had a kind of alchemical magic to it. We still think of glass as being magical in some ways. It's, it turns up in fairy tales all the time. And it's, it's, it still has that power for us. But then this idea that you would heat rock to unbelievably high temperatures and then it would produce something that was clear but brittle, but it could break, but it was strong enough to hold things. So it, it embodied so many different qualities. And there was, as I say, this kind of alchemical magic to it. When you look at it in that way, it's not surprising that it cropped up in delusions and people all over Europe. In fact, there were so many people who thought they turned into glass in early modern Europe that there was a discrete category of people called the glass men of Europe. And, you know, there's the stories of Victorians presenting themselves to doctors saying that they thought that their guts had turned to concrete at a time when concrete was a new technology. And of course, since the kind of 60s and the Great Seal Bug and all that kind of stuff about espionage, nanotechnology and so on, people saying, doctor, I think my thoughts are being downloaded by a chip in my teeth. You know, that started to become a really common presentation of delusions from the mid, mid 20th century onwards. And so again and again, you see new technology and changes in technology reflected in delusions. You talk about how the content and context of delusions change from era to era, but they, they do have common threads. In fact, you said that they had encoded meetings that demand interpretation and that they hold the key to our collective anxiety and traumas. Those, those are exact quotes. But what did you mean by that? And can you provide some examples? Oh, that's that's a biggie. That's fascinating. The first being, so in the case of, of Charles VI, he's great visual demonstration of this, it, that how delusions can operate as a kind of um, distance regulator, as a, an instruction to the world in how to treat you. You know, you can see being made of glass is, is saying, you know, keep back, you'll break me, I'm fragile. Um, but also I'm a treasure, I'm precious, something to be admired and something of value. A delusion can be a way of becoming the metaphor, as it like Charles turns himself into glass. He's giving the world instructions on how to treat him. And it feels like a kind of what we might call now an anxiety disorder, or in fact, quite a clever strategy for dealing with anxiety to say you're made of glass. And then other sort of major strands is that delusions seem to be a really 
rather ingenious way of accommodating conflicting beliefs. One of the things that as human beings we find hardest, almost harder than anything, is dealing with ambiguity, ambivalence, conflicting beliefs, cognitive dissonances. And we just hate it. We don't want to sit with it. And of course, a great conspiracy theory, for instance, a paranoid conspiracy theory, which we, we see a lot of now. Um, I tell the story of James Tilly Matthews, an 18th century tea broker from London who got tangled up in the French Revolution, got into all kinds of trouble, um, experienced a kind of real reversal of fortune, got kicked out of, of revolutionary France, got humiliated, and came back to London and kind of conceived this incredible conspiracy theory that the Jacobins in France, the revolutionaries, um, were using a machine, a contraption that he called the heirloom, which was emitting magnetic rays on the street corners of Westminster in London and using it to influence the minds of the politicians in Parliament to bring the revolution to England. I mean, his story is wild and extraordinary. And he was living in very chaotic, ambiguous political times when, you know, who was right and who was wrong could change in five minutes and you could lose your head under the guillotine from either side, hour by hour. And, you know, his delusion gave a narrative, a really clear story, gave him a job to do. It made villains clear and and the heroes clear and put him clearly on the side of justice. Again, he's just a really daring do, rip-roaring example of, of a conspiracy theory from the 18th century with all of the content, of course, from that culture. Telly Matthews came up with the idea of the heirloom when magnetic forces were being discovered from in a scientific uh, environment. The echoes about the internet and so on are, are kind of uncanny in the idea of invisible forces and what they might be doing and how that might make people feel incredibly anxious. I don't think that's difficult to understand. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me. Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back with the author of A History of Delusions, The Glass King, A Substitute Husband, and A Walking Corpse, Victoria Shepard. I think when most people think of delusions, they just think of it as being part of mental illness, part of being quote unquote crazy, because these delusions are clearly false. And therefore, the people who are having these delusions can just literally be dismissed. But you have a different opinion on this. How should we be looking at delusions? The story of delusions, these threads of how delusions might function and how you see them what they are offering people rather than seeing them as kind of marvels of the mind that are inexplicable and bizarre. I've tried to say in my 
to try to sort of say, look, you can't hold this topic at arm's length or put it in a kind of curio freak show cabinet. We're all somewhere on that spectrum. We all have delusional thinking. Why? What's it offering us? And it seems to me really clear looking at these stories that there are these threads, there are these common functions to delusions. And it's it's actually, I did find myself feeling very impressed with the kind of imaginative ingenuity of delusions when they when they cross over with psychosis and they're very very serious they're to be taken seriously they're not um frivolous anecdotes by any stretch of the imagination they can present dangers to the people experiencing them and to others but they are also kind of extraordinarily imaginative and rather ingenious i've come to see them as ingenious psychological strategies for dealing with difficult stuff you know even the i've i've come to see them well, they are. They're very often responses to to trauma, to wretched existence and to difficulty. There's a particular thread of um, women in the 19th century and, and actually early 20th century who have sort of fallen out of good society in inverted commas. And it's not only women who fall out of society, but I certainly see there's a thread of women who fall out quicker and find far fewer ways back in. In one case of Margaret Nicholson, she's she's a, a woman who um, assaulted King George III, claiming that he he'd stolen her birthright. Her delusion was that she she was the rightful heir to the throne of England. What had happened to her was that she'd um, she'd been in service, really working very hard in London with uh, well-to-do families. Never had a, any black mark against her name at all. And then one day, somebody saw. The valet, one of the other men in service, coming out of her bedroom and gossip spread. They were both immediately fired from their job. And her story is just devastating demonstration of how she could go from being hardworking, self-financing, successful woman, unblemished record. And then suddenly she had nowhere to live, no job, nothing. And we next see her turning up at St. James's Palace, claiming to be the rightful heir to the throne. So several of the women who I've studied, that's happened to them. They've fallen on hard times, maybe because they've rightly or wrongly been seen to commit a kind of social faux pas of behaviour. And that's it. Their life is wretched. They're reduced to nothing and there's no real way back for them in terms of getting back into society. And these very grandiose delusions emerge from that down, you know, even to people, the people who thought they were Napoleon. That's another really interesting kind of entry delusion. The number of people who way after Napoleon himself died, presented saying that they they were Napoleon, including some women, actually. And you can see really clearly there what a delusions might be offering with France that's in a complete mess and putting on the costume of the poster boy for being self-made. He was from a lowly family in, in Corsica and now he conquered half the world. It's not hard to see what wearing that costume, that persona might offer somebody. I noticed that trauma features heavily in delusions that you document in your book. You write about several people who have delusions in response to the trauma of war specifically. You know, the effect of dealing with war trauma is something that hasn't changed and didn't change over the, the hundreds of years that I follow. So the people who believe that they've been decapitated by the guillotine after the French Revolution, the people who, I tell a, a story about a woman who believed that King George V was in love with her. 
as she was experiencing what became known as erotomania, the fixed false belief that somebody of high status is in love with you when they're not. My first case study is Madame M, who's a woman who she walks into a police station in 1918, just at the end of of the First World War, demanding a divorce on the grounds that her husband's been murdered and substituted for a double. And her life She's married relatively well. She was she was working behind the scenes of the Belle Epoque, making dresses and doing well. But she'd experienced death of several children in quick succession, uh, the trauma of living through the First World War, many other difficulties. And out of that, her life had really collapsed. And she'd found this really kind of striking reversal of fortune that she had to somehow accommodate. And she's recorded by her psychiatrist as walking in claiming that her children haven't died. They've been substituted for doubles as well. Her husband isn't her husband. He's he's a double. And this incredible story, belief that, in fact, from her point of view, even the soldiers of the First World War haven't died. They've been put under Paris in the catacombs. And again, you start to see that perhaps it's easier to deal with the idea of, of substituted loved ones than with the idea that either you don't like them very much in the case of her husband, I came to the conclusion she was not happily married, but also in terms of the terrible loss of her children and kind of mass loss of the war, it's easier. There's a comfort and a scaffolding in believing, a psychological prop in believing that people have been substituted. And even though it's a horrible, horrible plot, she says that, um, It's like a sort of Dante's Inferno strata under Paris filled with all these abducted people. But again, it gives her it gives her a job to do. It gives her a plot to foil, people to rescue. And so it starts to make sense. And I've tried with all of these 10 people whose lives I follow to try and to say, yes, they're crazy in inverted commas, but they mean something real. What is it that, you know, that's the question. They, they mean something real. And I think that's true, absolutely, of delusions. They always mean something real. They always reward sort of pulling up a chair and listening really carefully. And they won't be argued down or back into generally accepted reality through any kind of logic or, or shouting or haranguing. This is the, answering that question of how we bring people back. You know, it's not an easy sell, is it, to people who've created this sort of um, neat story for themselves. In, in terms of a paranoid conspiracy, it's not an easy sell to bring people back into a into a messier world, is it? But I think that's probably what we have to try and do. <laughs> One of the things that's so amazing about all of the case studies that you cover in your book is that, well, frankly, it, it reads fake. It reads like fiction. It reads like a novel. It all sounds like some sort of sci-fi action movie. And I had to remind myself over and over again that your book is nonfiction. This isn't made up. You're documenting the lives of real people. Did you find it hard not to get sucked into this yourself? Uh, the premises of delusions are intriguing, aren't they? Because they they have a fantastic premise at the beginning of all of them. Like I say, the woman walking into the police station saying, I want a divorce. Why, madam? Oh, but my husband's been murdered in exchange for a double. You know, you know it's like an opening for from a kind of thriller, isn't it? Like an Edgar Allan Poe short story. They're really good stories that these people have created. And I, they're not creating them cynically or manipulatively these are real fixed false beliefs but there is a a drama and a performative element to many of these that are very seductive and her story has just had me you know on tenterhooks to know the next installment 
She's also particularly interesting because there's this fascinating and very visual delusion about people uh, hidden, abducted and hidden under Paris. And some of them have had kind of Frankenstein-like operations on them to change their identities where the stitches have shown. And it's kind of gory and macabre. And as I say, involving murder and abduction and interesting crossover there with um, with QAnon, actually, the, the idea of uh, abducted children who've been hidden, say as an aside. But her stories is an incredible yarn, intriguing psychologically about where it had come from in her life. And I've done my best to try and answer that by looking at the fragments that we have left, the notes that she gave to her psychiatrist, Joseph Capra, and looking myself at evidence. I literally went and paced the streets of Paris this summer to <laughs> follow, to see where she'd lived, to see if I can try and understand a bit about her real life struggles. And what my job as a historian has been to try and find the real lives, the real people. When I found out that Madame M, who's the, the pseudonym name of this case study for the delusion of doubles, the illusion of doubles, this kind of principal type of delusions, and she's the kind of poster girl for it. And when I found out that her real name was Louise and which apartment block she lived in, I got the first of a series of sort of feeling like I was finding a real person who was struggling with very ordinary, extraordinarily painful things, if that makes any sense. Because the danger with the fact that they're such incredible stories is that you're kind of seduced by that. And what I've tried to do is be much more forensic and see common human struggles that we all share, the strategies for dealing with the difficult existence that we could all sort of take tips from. I'm not suggesting we all we all develop a delusion, but certainly there are kind of solidarity between people, between centuries that I found really touching when I was researching it. It, it really is amazing when, when you think about how much in common these people throughout the centuries had. Victoria, thank you so much for being here. Where can folks find your book and of course you online? Thank you so much. So um, I'm. you can find me at victoriashepherd.org um, and all my other social media stuff is on there. And my book is published by One World um, and should be available on all online stores or in, in bookshops. You are very, very welcome. But to all of our listeners, thank you so much for being here. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. I'm also an award-winning public speaker who could be available for your next event. My book is on Amazon because, well, everything is. Or you can grab a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It is absolutely free. And hey, can you do me a personal favor? Recommend the show. Tell your friends, your family members, your colleagues. Send a text message, an email. Post us on social media. Sharing the show is how we grow. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day, no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. 
One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.